We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 in Exodus 21 tonight. Last week, we dealt with the holiness of God. And we talked about God's otherness. We talked about Him being set apart from creation, far above everything. We talked about how we can look at a sunrise. We talked about how we can look at a mountain peak uh, filled with snow. We talked about the power of the ocean. We talked about sitting maybe on the seashore and contemplating the power of creation, the majestic wonder of life, six million different uh, life forms and so forth. And we, and we pondered the stars and the heavens and, and the majesty of the universe. And then we said that these kinds of things just testify to the majestic power of God because God is far beyond the things that put awe in us. When I look at the sunset, when I look at the sky, when I look at the ocean, when I look at uh, some of the things that have been created, they, they uh, bring a sense of awe to me, but God is even above those things because He is responsible for those things. And we hit on a key word last week, and it was this word. It was the word Holy. When the Bible uh, looks to describe who God is, it uses the word holy. As a matter of fact, we saw in Isaiah chapter 6, Revelation chapter 4, that the angels would sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 6 says, The whole earth is full of His glory. And so we saw the holiness of God. And then towards the end of our message, we talked about how God's presence in the temple and in special occasions uh, on Mount Sinai and in other occasions when he appeared to Manoah and Joshua and others, Moses up on Mount Horeb, how his Shekinah presence came down and how it put an awe in people, how they would often fall to their face. Uh, John even describes when seeing Jesus that he fell to the ground as a dead man. And uh, this is what happens in the awesome presence of God. But at the tail end of that message, we talked about the fact that we now have become the dwelling place of God. We are His holy temple. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that. It tells us we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that when God, uh, in the new covenant, God has decided to make us His dwelling place. He has decided to set us apart. And when you look at the word holy, the word holy in its most basic sense means to be set apart Unto God. Now, God is the definition of holiness. When you want to define the word holy, you look to God. But God is the one who also makes things holy. We talked about uh, how He has a holy calling, holy scriptures, holy garments. We went down all this list of things, the holy ointment, anything that has to do with God. Moses stood on holy ground because where God is, that thing becomes holy. It becomes set apart unto God. And that is, the why, that is the reason why you are called holy tonight. Because wherever God is, that thing is deemed to be holy. Holy vessels in the temple. The holy of holies where the special presence of God dwelt. There was the holy place, then the curtain, then the holy of holies. This is where the special presence of God would come down. And now in the new covenant, what are we? We are the dwelling place for that special presence of God. We are the temples of the living God. He has decided to consecrate us and make us holy. And the only reason that we are holy is by virtue of the fact that the holy God has decided to make us His dwelling place. He dwells in you and in me tonight. 
That's why I'm holy. I'm not particularly holy because of, of who I am. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that if I look within myself, I'll see a deceitful and wicked heart. I'll see that I am a child of wrath by nature. I am fallen. I am sinful. I, am, I have proclivities towards sinful things. But when the holiness of God floods my life, and when I tap into that holiness, then I become practically what the Bible says I am positionally. I'm already holy and beloved of God, but practically I can be holy as well. So tonight we're going to kind of launch into a study, first 11 verses of uh, Exodus 21 tonight, and talk about the implications of what we're to do with the holiness of God and what He calls us. So I'm going to read a few verses for you tonight. We're going to talk about the role of a bondservant, and then we're going to jump into some things related to that and our own holiness. Let's pray. Father, we lift our eyes up to the mountains. Where does our help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. I lift my eyes up in this world, and sometimes I... I want to cry over what I see, Lord. Sometimes I I look at myself and uh, I see my own failings, my own weaknesses. But the psalmist says, I'm to lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. The only way that I can be holy practically, Lord, is for you to infuse me with your holiness and power. And Lord, how desperately I need, how desperately we need tonight to live a holy life. Not to earn salvation, but because we are saved. And because you say that you've set us apart to be your special dwelling place. Lord, that is, that is a mind-blowing truth. But it is true. That you dwell in us. That your special presence is in us. And Lord, we want to let it shine. We want to get out of the way so that your presence can come through our lives. We are not God, we never will be God, but we can reflect who you are. You can shine through us as vessels of the living God. So tonight, Lord, teach us to be holy. Teach us what it means to live a life pleasing to you. Show us from your holy word what we're to be and how we can be that. And then let us live it out practically, Lord. We we live in a world that everything... (laughs) is screaming against holiness tonight. Everything seems to be almost the opposite in the media and the secular world. But tonight, Lord, let us be set apart for you. Let us learn what it means to be holy. And when we fall short of that, Lord, may we quickly run to you and ask you to forgive us and bless us and make us holy again. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, not to confuse the issue, I want to make sure that you understand that positionally you are already holy. The Bible says that God has made you holy in His sight because of the work of His Son. So what I'm going to talk a lot about tonight is practical holiness. Since we are positionally holy, how should that affect our life in practical terms? And I want to first start off with a thought for you. Just kind of, uh, how does uh, my Lord's holiness impact my life? The first thing I want to just submit to you tonight is the word Lord in Greek is kurios. And the word, a synonym for the word Lord is, starts with an M, master. 
The word Lord, you could safely translate as master. As a matter of fact, the Greek word kurios is translated master in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Some translations, as a matter of fact, have that no one can serve two lords, and some say no one can serve two masters. Same Greek word kurios. The Greek word for Lord or Master. Now, that's going to be significant as we jump into this text tonight. Let's read it. Now, these are the ordinances, Exodus 21.1, which you are to set before them, before the Hebrew people. Now, these specific ordinances, if you want a, a couple of details on these, are <clears throat> ordinances, one of several Hebrew words this uh, study Bible reads, describe the law, the Torah. This word ordinances or judgments describes God's response to a specific action, something like an umpire's call. <clears throat> so let me kind of quickly uh, give you what this means. The Ten Commandments are called apodictic law. That is, they are general statements, but not necessarily specific to all situations. They are specifically applied, but they are not specific in terms of case law. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But we don't have a lot of details. These are general commands. But now for the next several chapters, we're going to get something called causistic law or case law. And when Moses had uh, the law of God in general, he also had cases that came to him that had very specific details about them. And, and in chapter 18, it tells us in Exodus, he had to go to the Lord and get counsel as to how to deal with these specific cases. So sometimes in our Christian law, life, we, we feel that way. We say, we know kind of generally what the Bible says about things, but what about specific cases? Is there any insight into that? Well, this is what the next several chapters deal with. Specific cases or judgments that are to be set before uh, the Hebrew people. You could call this a detailed enlargement of the Decalogue. The Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. These next several chapters expound upon the Ten General Laws and have very specific laws now. The first law is concerning servants. If you buy a Hebrew slave, it says... He shall serve six years, but on the seventh shall go out as a free man without payment. Sometimes people in the ancient world actually allowed themselves to become slaves. Now, we have to make a differentiation between um, what was uh, slavery as we know it, uh, brutal, um, terrible slavery under the, the hands of some very terrible people, and that which uh, degraded people, that which uh, uh, just kind of uh, put them down under the taskmaster, as it were, for slavery. And sometimes people in the ancient world who allowed themselves to come into the service of another. As a matter of fact, of the hundred and I think it was, I'm trying to remember how many millions lived in the Roman Empire, one half of the Roman Empire were actually slaves. So there was a different kind of relationship in many of these uh, situations where it was almost like someone coming under the service of another as an employee or employer relationship. Now, a lot of this depended on the master himself. If the master was a hard and sinful and terrible man, then you might be ill-treated as a slave, as a servant. But you could also come under the service of someone who was good and righteous and you simply work for them. You were kind of like a steward. As a matter of fact, was it Jacob who worked seven years 
for for uh, what was her name? I can't remember her name right now. Who was it? For Laban to to try to get was it Leah uh, as a wife. So remember, he came under the service of him for seven years. Now, of course, he was lied to about that whole thing and kind of kind of um, ripped off. But uh, he voluntarily went into service. Joseph was on the negative end, was sold into slavery by his brothers. You remember that, and uh, that was a terrible situation. So there there were good and bad cases. I guess you could say good cases in the sense that someone could even pay off a debt. Uh, Perhaps you owed somebody money. You might say to them in the ancient world, I will work for you for two years to pay off my debt. These are some of the situations that would go on. A Hebrew person, uh, an Israelite would say, I owe you money. I'm indebted to you. I'll work for you. I'll work in your household. I'll become your steward. I'll be under your direct um, command, if you will. And so if he comes alone, verse 3, if this servant or slave comes alone, he shall go out alone after the six-year period. He was not to have uh, to, to be forced to serve forever. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and, shall, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, notice this, I love my master... My wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, verse 6, Exodus 21. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. So now let's say that the uh, person has served six years by law, by the specific case law. Jason, would you get that side door for me, or Alan, somebody? Um, the specific case law says no more than six years of service. And even in the years of Jubilee, the uh, slave was to be let out earlier than that in the years of Jubilee. So let's say six years have passed, but this particular servant says, I love my master. I've had a wife and children in this household. I don't want to leave. Then what would happen is the master would literally, the language reads, take him to God he would lean the servant up against a door or a doorpost and take something like an ice pick called an awl here and drive it through the ear of the servant. This would be the mark of permanent servitude by voluntary submission. The person would say, I love my master. This has become my family. I want to serve you all the days of my life. Mark me. And so they would go and literally, you know, I don't know if there was any uh, anesthetic or whatever, but but bam, some of you have gotten your ear pierced, know that, you know, that can be kind of a frightening experience, but they would do it in the old fashioned way and out, um, uh, out of this would come the mark. In Deuteronomy 15, if you turn there for a second, there's a commentary uh, of God directing this now to the master, Deuteronomy 15 Verses 12 through 17. So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. So this is the fifth book of Moses. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. There it is again. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. Verse 13, Deuteronomy 15. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. 
And you shall remember, now speaking to the master, that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord, your God, here's a key word, what did he do? Redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. So the Lord says to the master now, if you have a Hebrew slave, you are to treat him well and he is not to serve over six years. You're not to send him out empty-handed and you're to do all of this remembering that you too were a slave in Egypt and I, your master, did what? I redeemed you. Now, you've heard that term redeemed before, right? Sometimes we redeem uh, uh, plastic bottles for money and stuff like that. We think of uh, redeemed being used in other contexts. But here, redemption is specifically the purchasing of a slave out of the slave market. And so God says to the master, he says, when you're thinking about how you're going to treat your own servant, I want you to remember. And this would uh, bode well for all of us in terms of how we treat people, right? If we have an employer-employee relationship, we should act graciously. Now, we don't let people get away with everything, but the point is, is that we're to remember that ultimately we have a master that we answer to as well. It doesn't matter what your position is, God is still above us. And we are to treat people with dignity and respect. Nobody, uh, nobody is this ultimate person who everybody must kowtow to. And nobody is unanswerable. You know, some, some of the cultic movements have become this way. Where the person becomes, uh, in essence, God. And he can do or she can do no wrong. That's not the case biblically. Uh, we are still accountable. And God says, you're to remember that I purchased you. I redeemed you from Egypt. And it shall come about. If he says to you, I will no, not go out from you. Say the servant says, I don't want to leave. Verse 16, because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take an all. Here it is again. And pierce it through his ear into the door. And he shall be your servant forever. And also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. So take him, take his wife, and pierce their ear, and this will be a sign that he has voluntarily said he will serve you forever. I had a friend years ago in the ministry who had a little cross earring. And sometimes earrings throughout history have become controversial. Now, some, some people think earrings are a sign of rebellion, especially in guys. You know, why has he got the, that earring, and what's that all about? Well, um, here, this piercing through the ear was a mark of submission. It was a- actually a mark of voluntary servitude. It was a, it was a thing saying, I am dedicated to my master. Uh, when uh, Alan and I went to Israel, we had an opportunity to get some rings that uh, were um, engraved with Hebrew. And so we were kind of pondering what we had put on the rings and uh, we thought the rings were really cool because they have, you know, Hebrew writing on them and we wanted to have them as a keepsake. Don't know if we'll ever be back to Israel. And so uh, what I decided to do in my own case is I got a ring that says I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ in Hebrew. I wear this ring on my right hand to remind me of who my master is and what I live for. Now this is my wedding ring. I'm about to celebrate... 17 years with my beautiful bride this Saturday, which is awesome. But I also wear this ring to remind me of what my life is all about. This is my master. He's, he's the one I live for. And so I think that's what this piercing did. I think this piercing was kind of a visible mark to say, you know what, you and I had an agreement. 
And I can't help but think of, you know, when I think of the word piercing, I think of what Jesus went through for us, that he was pierced through. He was marked. As a matter of fact, uh, we see in the book of Revelation uh, that it intimates that he may have those scars for all eternity. That he may uh, indeed bear those scars as a constant reminder to his saints of his love for us. That he was willing to be pierced through for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. I think that will be a constant reminder to us. And forever uh, he will uh, bear those marks of love, if you will. And so here's the, the bond slave. The idea of a bond servant of God. Now you might say, okay, Pastor Michael, where are you going with this whole thing? You've talked about holiness. You've talked about being pierced through in this voluntary service. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about what a bond slave is. Because this idea of a bond slave or one who voluntarily is marked out for service to God is connected. Because I want you to think of the piercing through something that identifies this voluntary love relationship of surrender and submission. You're my master. I'm going to serve you. Mark me. I want you to think about that in the sense of, first of all, holiness. Because to be holy is to be marked out for God. To be holy is to be consecrated unto the God who is the definition of holiness. And to be a bondservant in the biblical sense is a person who says, You, Lord, were pierced through for me. You mark me because I serve you. This is what my life is all about. You redeemed me from the slave market of sin with your own blood. And I can serve no other. You are my life. I voluntarily become your bondservant. I am in your service. You are my Lord. You are my master. What you say is the preeminent issue in my life. Whatever your word is, that is the will that must be done for me. Because you purchased me. Because I love you and you love me. Does that make sense? Holiness and this idea of a bondservant. One who is set apart or marked out for God. Now I want you to turn to the New Testament. And I want to show you a couple of scriptures there. Turn to the New Testament uh, book of Titus. So now you've got to go all the way past Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, pass up Timothy. You'll get to Titus. I want you to just show you some introductions to some letters. Uh, and show you these bondservants in the New Testament. Bond servants in the New Testament. And while you turn to Titus 1.1, let me tell you about this Greek word for bondservant. The Greek word for bondservant is doulos. And metaphorically, this is the Greek definition. It is one who gives himself up to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. A doulos, bondservant, is one who is devoted to another to the disregard of his own interests. It is a servant. It is an attendant. John MacArthur says this word implies absolute obedience. The slave knows no law but his master's word. He has no right of his own. He is the absolute possession of his master. He is bound to give his master unquestioning obedience. Number two, it implies absolute humility. It is the word of a man who thinks not of his rights, but of his obligations. It is the word of a man who has lost his self in the service of God. 
And three, it implies absolute loyalty. It is the word of a man, doulos, is the word of a man who has no interest of his own because what he does, he does for God. His own profit, his own preference do not enter into his calculations. His loyalty is to God. Yet at the back of it, and this is continuing to quote from MacArthur, the word implies a certain pride. So far from being a title of dishonor, it was a title by which the greatest ones of the Old Testament were known. Moses was the servant of God, 1 Kings 8.53, Daniel 9.11. Joshua and Caleb were the servants of God. Job, God said, have you considered my servant Job? Isaiah was the servant of God. Amos, the prophets. Um, Moses in 1 Kings 8.53 is called the servant of God. In Revelation 15, 3, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God. And here in Titus 1, 1, Paul, the apostle, is called what? In Titus 1, 1, he is a bond servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Turn to the book of James. The book of James. A little further back, go past Hebrews, you'll get to James 1.1. 1, 1. Who was James, by the way? James was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with him, right? Says he didn't even believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. What is James called in James 1.1? 1, 1? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine James, the brother of Jesus, calling himself a slave to his brother? Wow! I can't think of any other sibling rivalry that bring out such humility from a brother to a brother. But here, what does James say? I am the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And oh, there are so many places where this is mentioned. Turn now to the next book over. You're going to get to uh, 1 Peter and then go to 2 Peter. What do you think Peter called himself? 2 Peter 1.1 Simon Peter, a, what's he called? A bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Keep turning. Let's go to Jude, right before Revelation. Jude 1.1. Was Jude related to somebody? Jude was also the, what? Half-brother of Jesus Christ. Here's another brother saying it. Jude, Jude 1.1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and here's the identification and brother of James Jude called himself a slave of Jesus Christ and in Revelation 1.1 just go to the next book over it says this Revelation 1.1 the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his who? Bondservants, the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, and who is that? John. His bondservant, John. Did you know tonight that if you trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are holy, that you are set apart, marked out for God's service, and you tonight are a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ? Would that describe your life? Would you say that the preeminent issue in my life and what makes me tick, what makes my heart beat, what is my priority in life is the will of my master? That is the biggest issue for me as an individual. That's what marks me out. That's what your neighbors would say about you. 
and your co-workers and your boss. Hey, man, that person is a servant of the Lord Jesus. I remember one time I got a letter in the mail from a friend of mine. You know, official letter, postmarked and everything, and it said, Michael Lance, servant of the Most High God. And I thought, my brother's calling me out through the mail system so that people deliver mail to my house and they know who I am. Oh boy, I better be more careful, you know, right? Servant of the, bond servant of God. And all that that reflects. One definition says, in calling oneself a bond servant, it is to give up your own will. In, uh, go back to the book of Romans for a second. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about what Paul had to say about bond service. So, you got a Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Romans 1 1. Paul again will call himself a bond servant of Christ Jesus, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. That's Romans 1 1. One Greek dictionary says, in calling himself a bond slave of Christ, the apostle Paul intimates that he had formerly been a bond slave of Satan and that having been bought by Christ, he was now a willing slave bound to his new master. Is that a tenable view? That there are some people in our world tonight that are actually bond servants to Satan? That they actually go about doing his will? You know, after the uh, shooting at the uh, university, what was the name of the university again? Virginia Tech, right? There were some Christian guys who went to local campuses and asked college students if what the shooter did was evil and if he himself was evil. Do you know that in our politically correct and relativistic society, these kids being interviewed on college campuses were hesitant to call this man evil or his act evil? They couldn't bring themselves to do it because everything's relative. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. They were like waffling on whether or not to call this evil. 32 people, 31, 32 people dead, shot in cold blood. I don't know if I can call that evil. If you can't call that evil, what are you going to call evil? We live in a society where good is no longer good. Evil is good and good is evil. We don't even know how to discern anymore. We're afraid to call things what they are. We're afraid to say, you know what, that was an evil act and that person is evil and perhaps under the dominion of Satan himself. (gasps) How dare you? But that is the case. And Paul said, you know what, at least he intimates it here, that the biggest issue that drove his life is he realized that all the years that he spent as a Pharisee, he was actually under the control of Satan. Because what did Paul go about doing? persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He said, man, I was a tool of the devil. I was trying to stamp out the very thing that was of God. And tell you what, I don't know about you, but that's one of the motivators for me tonight. So I spent enough years serving the wrong side. Amen? I spent enough time messing up myself and people and dishonoring God. I have a new master. 
Now let me ask you tonight. Let me ask you tonight. And I know that this is one of those messages where, you know, we've got to do some introspection. What is the single biggest thing that affects your service of God? What is the single biggest thing that affects your service for God? What would you say it is tonight? The single biggest thing. I would submit to you it's a no-brainer in a general sense. You know what it is? It's spelled S-I-N. Now, you're in the book of Romans, right? Go to Romans chapter 6. And let me just give you two thoughts I wrote down for all of us tonight. The biggest enemy of your effective service to God is sin. And the biggest advocate to your effective service to God is the Holy Spirit and His power. Amen? Does that make sense? Your biggest enemy is sin. Your biggest advocate is the Spirit of God. You know, we saw in Galatians when we studied that book that the Spirit and the flesh, what do they do? They're contrary to one another. They kind of war against one another. Sometimes you don't do the things that you wish, right? We've all gone through that. We know we want to serve the Lord. We know He's worthy of our praise and service and adoration 24-7. But there's another law working in us, isn't there? The law of sin. That's in our members. The old fallen nature, that sinfulness, that pride, the thing that makes me lazy about the things of God and lazy about prayer and, and a fearful to evangelize and fearful to stand on my convictions. Paul says in Romans 6, look at verse 14. For sin, Romans six fourteen shall not ma- be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Don't forget that, because I know this can be convicting. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Some translations say, God forbid that we would do that. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, remember that bondservant image, for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God, verse 17, that though you were, keyword, were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. By the way, this form of teaching is teaching of the apostles' doctrine or the Bible. That's why we need Bible teaching. Because the teaching forms us more into the image of Jesus. There was a lady I talked to on the phone the other day. She was mentioning going to church, and she said, church is almost like me going to a counseling session. And she goes to what I would call a very radical seeker church, which is very light on Bible teaching. She says, I feel like I've been counseled. I've come out of a counseling session. Now, I know what the church teaches over there, and while there is a little Bible mixed in, it's mostly kind of psychologized. So she may be getting some practical felt needs dealt with, but I wonder if she's being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ by good Bible teaching. Amen? See, this is the issue tonight. It's the form of teaching, because what does the Bible do? Let me ask you a question. Do you eat food every day? Do you eat every day? Now, sometimes you guys fast, and sometimes you've been sick and you didn't eat, right? I don't know if you're like me. I eat every day. Now, I fast from time to time, and I rarely skip meals, but occasionally I will skip a meal. But I eat, okay? 
But let me ask you a question. Do you go to that form of teaching that's going to form your spirit day to day? Do you eat this every day? Um, that's legalism, Pastor Mike. No, 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 no. This is reality, folks. This is what we need, right? I'm not saying any of us have arrived, but this is the form of teaching that that's going to shape us. So Paul says, look, this is what's important. This is what you need to do. He says in verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Everybody could relate to this in the Roman world. For when, verse 20, you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Have you ever looked back at your life and thought about the things that you did in the past, in your BC days, and thought, what in the world was I thinking? What was I doing, doing that, right? Was that me? And some of us would like to say, that was the old me, right? Those are the things I'm now ashamed of. Those are uh, the things for me, you know, between the ages of about 16 and 21, where I've got some serious remorse and probably a long list of people I need to apologize to. Because I was doing things for which now I'm ashamed because my master was not Jesus Christ at that time. My master was, I'd have to say, Satan. Dominating, uh, you know, I didn't think about that. I'm, I'm not saying I was, a, I was intentionally worshiping Satan, but I'm saying my activity reflected that because my highest priority was me, what I wanted. And I didn't care who got in my way. See, that's what my life was about. But now there's shame there in terms of looking back I know I'm forgiven. But that's not me anymore. And I might say, was that really me? I think so differently now. Can you think of how many different categories of life the Lord's changed your perspective on? You know, how you look at things now? How many things has that form of teaching transformed? How many things has He metamorphosized in your life? How many renovation projects has He done? <laughs> you know? to refurbish you. So many. Oftentimes we think of, to give us ourselves a little grace tonight, we think of all those areas where we may not have arrived yet. Don't we do that? We're our own worst critics so many times. We think, ah, I'm still falling short in this category. I'm still falling short here. But how many things has God radically changed in your life? I mean, countless, right? How many things can you say are so different today because He's come in and started to mold and shape you. And those are the things we should celebrate. So Paul says in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Verse 23, still in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn. That's your wage when you sin it up and you don't know Christ. But by contrast, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the biggest enemy of your effective service for God is sin, and the biggest advocate you have to effective service is the Holy Spirit. How you doing tonight? How you doing with your being marked out for God? Now, some people wear the crosses, and some people have the rings, and some people show up to the churches. 
I'm not talking about that tonight. I'm talking about where is your allegiance tonight. I'm talking about uh, in the in the everyday life that unfolds for you. Who's master? How much of the wheel does he actually have tonight? See, that's the question. And I think that comes out in how we witness and how we think about our priorities. Paul says, you know, I'm set apart. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. The love love of Christ compels me. My main question now, Acts 9, 6, is what do you want me to do, Lord? That's my main question in life. I think if you interviewed Paul and he sat here, Acts 9, 6, and it says it in at least the New King James, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? That's a question that we should be asking. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service in view of His mercy. Right? Don't be conformed any longer to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll know what the perfect, good, and acceptable will of God is. You see, every day, what do I do? I wake up and I realize, you know what? I'm in, I'm in the service of my master. I'm marked out. And every day I wake up, it's not, uh, what do I want to do today? Where should we go today? What should we wear? What should we eat? What should we... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. First thing I should do is go and report to my master. Say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Jesus said to his disciples, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you friends. Because a slave doesn't know his master's will. But you know the will. You see, you're no longer a slave. Actually, you are a son. And if a son, then an heir. You have an intimacy with God that goes far beyond just a servant relationship. Yes, you are a bondservant, but it's much deeper because you are a son or a daughter. You're a co-heir with Christ. He no longer calls you servants, but friends. As the song says, I am a friend of God. I have an intimate relationship. And so, yes, in one sense, I think of it as my master, my Lord, but in another another sense, I think of it as my father. I'm in the service of my father, actually. It's my father's world. I'm serving my father. And so each morning, my prayer, Father, what would you have me to do today? Is there someone I can talk to about the gospel? I'm in your service. I'm presenting myself as a holy sacrifice. I'm your bondservant. Not my will, but yours be done. See, that's what this life is all about. In the Gospel of John, you remember when the 5,000 plus people were hungry and Jesus uh, was dealing with his own uh, disciples about their faith and stuff. In John 6, 6, it says he was testing them for he himself already knew what he was going to do. Did you know something? God already knows what he's going to do. Did you know that? He already knows what he's going to do. He's already got a plan. He doesn't even need my input. Sometimes that makes me a little sad, but... He doesn't need my input. My question is, what do you want to do, Lord? You already know what you're going to do. Would you please use me? Because I'm enlisted in your service. See, God can use anybody he wants to. He's used donkeys in the past. 
He can use whatever. He, he can use an angel, but he's decided to use us. And I'm one that says, Lord, and not a, not a boast, but Lord, I'm willing. Please send me. When Isaiah saw that picture of God's holiness in Isaiah 6, what did he say? He says, Lord, I'm undone. I'm ruined, right? Then a little later on, the Lord says, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? And after Isaiah saw the beautiful picture of God's holiness, what did Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord. If that's who you are, then here I am. Send me. Don't send somebody else. Send me. Don't send the so-called professional. We're the body. We're his hands and his feet. Send me. I'm your servant. I'm marked out. Holy and beloved of God. For it is God, Philippians 2.13, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember Peter? Two pictures of Peter. One, Matthew 19.27. Lord, we've left everything. What will there be for us? What's in it for me, Lord? That's Peter before the resurrection power. You know what after happened? What happened after? Acts 3. Peter and John going to the temple for prayer. Guys standing there, alms for the poor. Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold, I don't have. I don't have any money, but what I have, I give to you. See, the attitude of a servant is not what is in it for me. I've already gotten everything. I've already been bought and purchased by Christ. I'm a co-heir. My question is no longer what's in it for me. My question is, Lord, what would you have me to do? What I have, I give to you. See, that's what a servant does. But honestly, tonight, when we assess our spiritual life and our service to God, my flesh is asking all the time what's in it for me or who's seeing what I'm doing. You know, oh, I want credit. Right? That's what my flesh wants. Someone wrote, uh, let me ask you a question. If you had a basin of water and you were washing somebody's feet and you had to wash their feet for 50 years behind a closed door, would you do it? Or would your main concern be about who's watching when you do it? See, my flesh always wants to know who's watching. Am I getting the credit? Somebody acknowledging what I do? God says, don't worry about that. Don't be a man pleaser. Be a God pleaser. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I'll give to you. Did you know in uh, Luke 1, <clears throat> verse 38, that Mary called herself the bond slave of the Lord? Which Mary, you say? Mary, the mother of Jesus? She said in Luke 1, 38, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word, she said to the angel. I'm the bondslave of the Lord. Simeon in Luke chapter 2 says, Now, Lord, your bondservant can depart in peace according to your word. And the Apostle Paul said, For am I now, Galatians 1.10, seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. To uh, <clears throat> close our evening, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2.
How does a bondservant assess his faithfulness to God? How does he measure it? You're going to go to Philippians 2, but let me just read this for you. The words of Jesus. Philippians 2 is what you want, but this is from Luke 17. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk? And afterward, you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, says Jesus. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, quote, We are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. See, when Jesus talks about our service, he says, look, don't look for the pat on the back from man. If you do what, what's required of you, just count yourself an unworthy slave because you only did, in essence, the minimum. You should go above and beyond for this holy God who paid for our souls with his blood. Does that make sense tonight? We kind of, we, we really wash this down in our church culture. Philippians chapter 2. If therefore there is, verse 1, any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another is more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a... What's your Bible say there? Who took the form of a bondservant? Who? Jesus Christ. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus was summing up some of his teaching especially in the book of Matthew. He talked about some uh, servant-master relationships. In one particular parable, he talked about giving out talents. Remember that? It's found in Matthew 25. I tell you what, let's let's go there. I told you that was the last passage, but we'll make this one the last one. Matthew chapter 25. So that's the first book of your New Testament, Matthew 25. Fourteen. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, Matthew 25, 14. 
who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, that's a key, and he went on his journey. And immediately, verse 16, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave or servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord or master. The one, verse 22, who also had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me two talents, uh, to me two talents, and I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master or Lord. 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. I've got that underlined in my Bible. And went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. On from that, Jesus goes on to talk about, in verses 31 through the end of the chapter, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came to me. Uh, The servant said to the king, Lord, when did we see you sick and come to you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you in prison and come to you? And the king will say to the servants, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. What's the point of the parable? Martin Luther said, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. How can someone understand the great salvation that we possess, the great Lord that we have, and say to the Master, I've served you for six years. I'm out of here. I've got things to go on to. No, the person who understands salvation says, Lord, in light of all you've done for me, my master became the bondservant for me and was pierced through. Pierce me, Lord. Mark me with the all. Because I can do no less than serve the one who was pierced for me. See? 
I'm going to have up and downs in my life, no doubt. But if a person can say they're a Christian and have no, nothing to show for their love for Christ, no active service, nothing, I'm not talking about shut-ins or people who can't you know, leave their house. I'm not talking about extreme cases. I'm talking about the average person who sits in a church on a Sunday and says, yeah, I believe Jesus is the creator of the world. Yeah, I believe he humbled himself and was born in Bethlehem. Yeah, I believe he lived the perfect life for me. Yeah, I believe he died on the cross for me. But I'm too busy. Don't mark me. Matter of fact, I don't put Christian bumper stickers on my car. I don't wear crosses because I don't want anybody necessarily to know that I'm a Christian. Because if they know I'm a Christian, I'll be accountable. And I don't like that. I kind of like this secret agent Christian thing. Right? Where nobody knows I'm kind of incognito. I just kind of go about my... I don't want to go out and preach to people on the street corner the thing I'm weird. You see, Paul says, if you are a man pleaser, how are you a bond servant of Christ? The servant says, I'll be a fool for you. I don't care what he thinks or she... Now, my flesh cares, no doubt. But when I'm walking in the Spirit, I don't care. I know they need to hear the message. I know what you've done for me. I'm marked. Use me, Lord. That's what a bond servant says. Your will be done. Oh, I know it's hard in this world. I know there's lots of things tugging at you tonight. I know there's all these people who want to be the referee in your life. All these umpires want to make the call for you. Here's what you should do. Here's how far you should take it. Here's... Paul says, you know who's the umpire? It's not your friend. It's not the governor. It's not the president. The ultimate umpire is Jesus Christ. So let his peace rule in your heart. Let him make the call what you should do and what you should say and where you should be. Right? Let him make the call. Let his word richly dwell in your hearts. Whatever you do, Paul says, in word or deed, you do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to his name. See, that's what this life's about. Onward Christian soldiers. Right? The hymn says, this is what we need. But my enemies come against me. My flesh, the devil, this world, get me off track. And God says, no, my son, take your talents and invest them for the kingdom of God because time is short. Right? Only one life. Soon it will be past. Only the things we do for Jesus Christ will truly last. Father, <clears throat> we are so grateful tonight that you allowed your son to be pierced through with eight to ten inch nails through his hands and his feet. That literally on the cross, he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were forsaken, Lord, so that I could be forgiven. My master became the bondservant, born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, 
He surrendered his life for me. And now, Lord, you've called me into this service of the true King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I confess tonight, along with the brethren, that we struggle, Lord. Sometimes we try to serve more than two masters. Sometimes there are so many things pulling at us. Sometimes our priorities are mixed up and we lose focus. But Lord, we are to have one master. And Lord, we are to say regularly, Lord, what is your will? What do you want me to do? And Lord, in the times that, in the seasons when we have not done that, thank you that you are so gracious towards us. Thank you that we are holy and beloved despite what we do. You don't love us any more or any less because of our activity. But you do want us to be busy about your business. You do want us to honor you in our activity. You don't want us to separate out um, your holiness from how we live. You are holy, so we want to be holy, Lord. So Lord, would you come in and work in our lives tonight? As we prayed at the opening, we look up to the mountains, we ask, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord and nowhere else. My greatest advocate in living a holy life is the Holy Spirit, whom I often ignore and push away or push down. Let me, Lord, open my life up to you. Let me allow you to take the wheel of my life. Father, help me to forsake besetting sins, the things that so easily entangle and mess up the race that I'm running. And let me look to Jesus. Let me starve sin and feed righteousness tonight, Lord. Let me crowd out sin by the things that are beautiful and lovely and of good repute. Let me tell others of your glorious majesty and kingdom. Let me be a faithful steward of the manifold grace of God. Until you come, Lord. Until you come. We thank you so much.